Is it possible to be selfless? Are you ready for a new season? Uh, I feel like it kind of went really fast. For the most part, we've been lounging around. You've been going to regular school, and now it's time to start homeschooled again. First episode, we're going to explore giving. Why did you call the tree that there were tons of uh, mushrooms around the giving tree? Uh, I was referring to a famous book. Giving is kind of a complicated thing. Sometimes it's finding the right gift. And sometimes it's like if you had something for so long and then giving it to somebody, like, can I use an example? Because I don't know. Yeah, sure. We had this stuffed toy ear. It was from Winnie the Pooh. And we've had him for so long. And then one day, Dooley found interest in this toy. He started ripping it up. <laughs> and I was kind of sad about that. But you wanted to give it to him. Yeah. Because he really liked it. He would yank his head around it. You were torn. And ultimately, Eeyore was torn into many pieces, starting with the stuffing. We allowed for this to happen because it was one sliver of joy in the final days of his life. Which brings us to the news flash that Dooley, the dear old dog subject of a couple episodes of last year's Rome Schooled, has passed on and left our planet to run perpetually through puppy-filled pastures of blissful canine peace just a few months ago. My goals for this episode are to, first of all, reclaim the word giving from the cheese balls. Cheese balls? You know, by the time you're my age, especially this time of year, you start to hear the word giving used all the time. Tis the season of giving. Uh, you hear people say things like, give until it hurts. Um, and I want to look at the concept of giving with a little more realistic lens. And you guys are going to help me do that. Why we give? Uh, you guys have asked some really good questions about that and offer a couple ideas for people who might be completely clueless about what to give if you're trying to up your give game. So giving can be incredibly complicated and the motives alone are tough enough. Our first story is about Oscar the cat. Our Philadelphia producer Lydia Ritchie told us this story and so did her old friend Kathy who lives in Los Angeles. So with a little help of the Rome Schooled Magic editing station, two women 3,000 miles apart remembering a gift from 20 years ago. We start at an animal shelter in Los Angeles. There was this ta tabby, a gray tabby with a crooked ear. And the cat literally, I think because I'd been crying, like just, uh, it wrapped its paws around my neck and started licking my face. Because <laughs> the salt? Yeah, I guess the salt. But in my mind, this cat was, you know, he loved me. So I take Oscar the cat. And he was like a dog, like he loved car rides and all that kind of stuff. Then I broke up with my boyfriend and I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. And so Lydia had just, was living in San Francisco to bring the story back to Lydia. And she had a spot in her apartment. So when Kathy moved in to our flat in San Francisco, she called. Okay, I'm moving to San Francisco, but I have a cat. And she was horrified. And said, do you mind if I bring my cat? At the time, can you believe this? I hated cats. I mean, hated them. So she was not super happy about me and this cat coming up there. So I get to San Francisco. Oscar moves in with me. We end up living there for like three years. And somehow in those three years, Lydia fell in love with the cat. <laughs> it took a while. She brings this cat named Oscar with her from L.A. I think I ignored it for the first week. But then this fuzzy ball was just so damn cute. And... um. He had a bent ear and he was small and I was working from home so he would sleep on my, it was when monitors were really big, he would fall asleep on the monitor. 
Oscar's job was to keep the computers warm, basically, by laying on top of them all day. I started a business out of the house, so I was home all the time. He just always gravitated towards you. He, he, was, he wasn't even a cat. He was kind of a dog. But then I ended up taking a job in Hong Kong, and I was only supposed to be gone for six months. And I'm not going to take Oscar with me because he'd have to get quarantined and all that. I think she paid me some money, and she said, can I just keep the cat with you in the flat? And, of, and at this point, I was so in love with the cat. I'm like, oh, of course, whatever you need, you know. I ended up staying there for three years. And so Oscar was living in San Francisco with Lydia for three years. And then she was moving to New York. I couldn't even ask her if she was going to bring this animal with her to New York because I, I, I would have been devastated. But it was her cat. I was constantly, like San Francisco was my home base, so I'd be back a couple times a year. And If I went home to Oregon for Christmas, I would take Oscar up to Oregon with me while Lydia um, went back east to see her family. And so there was shared custody, definitely. And I don't really know the extent of the love affair going on between Lydia and Oscar. I just know that she really adores him. I think she was nervous that I was moving back to New York and she assumed I was going to take Oscar. So I enlisted her business partner, Sarah, to help me find the vet records for Oscar. I didn't ever think that would trigger Lydia to think I was collecting Oscar's items to like take him. <laughs> and so she was like freaking out. Uh, she was kind of being weird towards me and I didn't know why. I remember sitting in the living room with her and she handed me an envelope. She'd gone away for like a week. And so I had Oscar for a week and I documented his stay with me and I made her this little book. He, like all the things he did like he made pasta with me and then we took a picture and uh and I gave her this little it was like this is what I did at Kathy's house that kind of thing I, think, I thought it was strange I mean we're sitting right next to each other it's kind of just a it was just like a Wednesday afternoon and she hands me this envelope the note I can't remember it's funny I don't remember what the note said it was a picture of him asking if he could stay living with me you know, I've lived here so long, I'm so happy here. I hope you don't mind if, if you, I stay and I, you know. It was exactly what I needed. I mean, I was in love with this cat. She literally, I've never seen her. <laughs> she just broke down crying hysterically. <laughs> oh, it's gonna make me cry. It's funny, when I gave her Oscar, I felt like I was being selfish. It was actually one of the hardest things I ever did, giving Oscar away. I love that cat. As time's gone on, I don't think of it as a gift by any means. It's just kind of like we shared this uh, life uh, together. Um, you know, because it's funny, because sometimes people mean to give gifts that have such significance and such meaning. And then when you give a gift that does, and you don't realize it, there's just something a little bit special about that. Lydia has given me some phenomenal gifts over the years, little pieces of art and letters that are just kind of emotional and not... But, you know, and actually one of my favorite gifts is from her husband. Zach painted me a little tiny, it's like a maybe three by three inch canvas. And it's just Oscar's like a quarter of his head with the crooked ear. That's one of my favorite things in the world, that little painting. She embraces her imperfections in a way that makes her incredibly creative. She's different and she thinks differently and, and people don't always understand her stories. And, and, you know, but she's still always her. I think our imperfections make us who we are like when everyone's kind of trying to be the same and then you're the curvy tree in the forest she's that person that kind of stands out she kind of taught me to embrace my imperfections actually okay
that cat, it's, I think about him uh, a lot for a cat that died like 10 years ago. I eventually named my first son after Oscar the cat, the best cat ever. Okay. Oscar is, in fact, one of the coolest kids that I know. We put out the word that we were looking for gift stories, and Mira McLaughlin, one of our listeners, sent us this one. My folks had absolutely no money, and one year they told my brother and I that there was something wrong in the basement, a gas leak or something, and so for a few months we weren't allowed to go down there. On Christmas morning, it, there wasn't a single present under the tree, and we went to wake up our parents at the normal 5.30 a.m. and were just outraged. Um, they said to leave them alone and went back to sleep, but when they finally got up, they acted as confused as we were and finally said, well, maybe you should check in the basement. For months, unbeknownst to us, they'd been collecting cardboard boxes and refrigerator boxes and washing machine boxes and every imaginable smaller box because they'd noticed that children sometimes would play as happily with the box that the present came in as the present. But all these boxes were stacked and were filling the basement edge to edge. And my father took his big knife and at our direction would cut doors and windows in them and we'd make tunnels and he, they gave us giant markers to decorate them. And so all through that rainy Portland winter, we had our own world. And eventually we even got to jump off the stairs to ride them down as we crushed them flat to take them to recycling. And this particular Christmas has always been the very definition of gift giving for me. Inspiration and not money, um, a lot of stealth, and found objects. Next, I want you guys to meet Kyle Morton and his dad. Um, Kyle Morton got a very special gift from his dad. This is the story of that gift. The kidneys are a dirty organ. A lot of things get filtered through there. There's a lot of ways they can they can sort of go haywire. In my case, I had Lyme disease. What happened was my body uh, was trying to eradicate the bacteria which had hidden in the kidneys, mm -hmm. and so it sort of turned on itself. It, your it, body my turned, immune system turned went on after your kidney. my own kidneys. Yeah, he was sick for some time before we knew what he had, and we kind of went through a lot of different options trying to figure out what that was. Rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis. Because it didn't surprise me at all, you know, it was just, I was 15 and that's what my father was going to do. But the whole family, everybody wanted to donate it. He has a brother and sister who are amazing and, and they were talking about it and as a parent. Turns and, out everybody was a match pretty much, like yeah. everyone had, like I, I'm a very lucky yeah. boy, so I had all these people lining up and getting their blood tested yeah. and, and so it was sort of like this competition, but it, really was. it just made, you know, made sense when I was 15 and I looked up to my father more than anyone else and he was going to do it and I was comfortable with, with that, whereas I probably, like when I have that conversation with myself now, I don't know who I would accept that kind of terrible gift from. terrible gift. Kidney donation definitely saved Kyle's life. And it's pretty low risk as far as operations go, but high stakes in that it's a major operation. We found this particular gift, the kidney, to be so interesting that we kept talking to people. And here we'll feature four fascinating different ways that people have donated kidneys. First, the father to the son, which young Kyle and we thought was a no-brainer, right? People were trying to talk 
my dad out of it because it's way more traumatic for the giver than it yeah, is for the And my doctor was trying to talk me out of it. He said, you're going to let them cut you from stem to stern. You understand that scar? And he reached over and put a finger on my back and went like this. Wow. And I just go, he, and he didn't know at that point that it was Kyle. He just knew I was donating. And then I told him he could see him recalculating. There's a thing called social discounting. In a nutshell, it's something we do in which empathy, or therefore generosity, has to do with the distance between us and the person with whom we are involved. The term gets used differently by psychologists and economists and political theorists, but in general, it's the relatively simple idea expressed inadvertently by Kyle's dad's doctor that when compassion flows from an average person to their family members, the stream does not get constricted, and there's very little discounted from what flows. But as the relationship becomes more distant, more protracted, there's a discounting that goes along with that distance. And dad? That, yeah? Did they really have to cut Kyle's dad that bad? No. Actually, that's a good point. The doctor who told Kyle's dad that comment about stem to stern for the operation was actually um, like an ear, nose, and throat doctor. <laughs> The truth is, it's real surgery, and it takes a lot out of you. But they don't fillet you. It's done laparoscopically. The biggest incision is a little over two inches, where they take the kidney out. There's a long process to be a donor. You don't just jump up and do it. You have to go through a lot of um, screening and psychological screening, too. And when I was oh, yeah. in, Even when it's a yeah, family member. Right, yeah. right. I was incredulous, just like you. I asked the, the shrink, I said, so why are we... You know, she goes, you'd be amazed how many families put somebody forward and say, you're doing this, and we get to this point, and they go, I really don't want to do this, but my family's pushing it, I feel like I have to. They wanted to know that as yeah. a donor, you're in the spirit of giving this gift, and you understand that it's risky. So they, they just want to make sure that you've got all your facilities when you make that decision. Kyle is thoughtful about those who aren't as lucky as he was in his situation. He's one of the most compassionate people I know, and the sheer weight of what his dad did for him, as well as the idea of, of all those people who weren't so lucky, weighs on him. It's difficult. It's, it's such an intense thing, and, and questions about it oftentimes is like, well, I, I can talk to you about it, but I, you know, it, it's so um, abysmal, like looking into it. This idea that's only been a possibility in the last 60, 70 years that you can cut somebody open and like Frankensteinian <laughs> plug that organ in somewhere else. I have all these different modes of thinking about it. The one that's most utilitarian for me is that I like, yep, it's this thing and now like it, it's, it's for my health, it's there and it's a practical thinking about it. As opposed to in other times when I think about it, it's just this grotesque. Frankenstein. And then, the yeah, monster. then when I think of someone, you know, like my father having to, to doing that, it's, you know, it, it turns into this. You can already tell it, it hits kind of a, a heartstring for, for both of us. Yeah. So. How did you feel when you were about to have your kidney transplanted? That's a great question. Wow. I was, I was scared. We were all sitting in the backyard the night before, and we had to leave really early the next morning. I felt excited because, as you can imagine, I didn't feel very good at this. Like being on dialysis is a very scant compromise for having actually 
functioning kidneys. It's not it's not the same thing, and it's for all the people who are still on dialysis these days. It's you can ask them. It's not fun. A lot of my friends from from the dialysis were much older, and then many of them have passed. So you, when you'd go in, you'd see the same folks, and you'd get yeah. to know them. Yeah, and, and until one of them just wasn't there that day, and then one way or the other, that meant yeah. they got a, they got a transplant, or asked or that was it. So only two ways out. In case you've always wondered, and were too shy to ask, dialysis is no fun. You go to a center, hopefully there's one located near your home or work. If you're one of the millions of people in the world who are on dialysis, you go in and there's two types. They either pump your body full of a fluid that does your kidneys job, or they connect you with an external machine that washes your blood. This is hemodialysis. This accounts for about 90% of patients. You go in three times a week for three or four hours. Not only does it have an impact on your day, but it also doesn't work forever. Mortality is high. Only 35% of people survive five years of dialysis. Transplant is the only real option. But here's the biggest problem. There aren't enough kidneys available. Right now, there are 120,000 people in the United States alone waiting for kidneys. But in Kyle's case, luck and family were on his side for the terrible gift. My dad was trying to donate. My wife was trying to donate. And I used to sit down because I got this. You wanted to be the one. Yeah. And it was like in our family, it was like I was doing this. And I knew I had to because my wife is a wonderful, supportive and nurturing person. And I didn't think I could do that role (laughs) when she was laid up and my son was laid up. I really think that would have been the hardest role. In fact, to this day, I still think it was. I think I was just the dummy who said, oh, I can handle that. And I thought I could just cough this thing up and be done with it and get right back. In fact, in my mind, I thought Kyle and I would be sitting in our room together at a hospital playing the guitar, (laughs) warming up and getting feeling good and getting better immediately. Like the day after the The operation. I mean, like within moments. (laughs) I never had any concept that, oh, my God, I just got run over by a train. The surgery, it's less invasive for the, for the recipient because they just open up your skin and your fat here and then they just plop it in on top of your muscles. So when I was a skinny 15-year-old, I had this giant, like, lump, yeah, lump <laughs> this giant lump handle. It was just my dad's giant kidney hanging up. Really? Really? Yeah. Wait a second. Let me get this straight. So they, when they put a kidney into a person, they put it outside the... I, yes. I think this is the parasitic quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> they do. Outside the muscle wall. Yeah, and then they so, plumb you know, out so from there with the... Va- with they the, plumb out so from so there. So, so yeah. there went my plumb. boxing career. Yeah, that's... <laughs> but it, it, it works its way in between some muscle fibers? How does it get into the parent... What the cavity? So, so they connect it down here next to you. Uh, you have got a, a pretty big artery and vein running up your leg. So they actually plumb it down here next to you. I understand there is surgery and everything, but why was it such a complicating procedure? Yeah, it seems like it's almost um, magic, medical magic. You have to go under the knife, but I think you're asking, why did Kyle tell us that this gift has so many emotional complications? Yeah. It was so transcendent. I'm just going to use that word because there was really no rational way to like think about it for me. As a kid coming up against mortality very early on and having to like look at that, I couldn't I couldn't use any any rational tools. I couldn't be like, well, what, you know, can I think about this practically? And I couldn't. And so there's this heart of darkness, I'm going to call it like a black hole that I can that I feel. I think my father feels it too that's really difficult to like get into. It's hard to... Surrounding what happened? Physical pain's not that big of a deal. I mean, obviously it is, but eventually you'll black out. It's finite, right? But if you see somebody you love 
in physical pain. It's, it's this whole other thing. It's like an infinite feedback loop, right? Because they see that you see it. Mm-hmm. And they don't um, want you to feel that way. Yeah, and so and the, and so this was going on with my whole family, and it was you know in in a lot of ways it brought us um, really cl- even closer together, and especially my father and I are sort of at the center of the thing. Um, it's this black hole. When people look at the story from the outside in, it looks like a happy ending, and I think when we got through this, we realized and that it, it there was still a lot of right. danger and a lot of things that could go wrong over the years with this. And so you knew that it wasn't magic. You knew that through the right. through drugs and through it, medical intervention and support that Kyle's kind of go, carry on. But we like to think of cures, right? right? Like think done. something's yeah. curable. Here's the pill. And so, and all, and all my friends at the time were like, great, you got the kidney. We can get back Move to being on. kids, yeah, being in a band. And, and, yeah. and in a lot of ways I did, but, um, but there is no cure. And I remember this social worker who I'll always hate for this came to visit me in the dialysis clinic and he was like, well, you know, this is not a cure, it's a treatment, and you'll have to get another one eventually. And I was like, well, that's okay. great, man. Thanks yeah, for, I'm thanks 15, for I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> like, thanks a lot. But, but I remember that night thinking about that, pondering that. It's like, well, even if I didn't have any of this stuff, there is no cure, right? At the end of all this, you die. And so that, you know, it's like a brick. Yeah. It just hits you in the head. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of gruesome modern medical miracle, the fact that you can do this thing that by by all appearances looks like an Aztec sacrifice, right? You're like chopping like parts out of a body uh, and, and it works. And I feel for anyone who's in this position and, do- and doesn't either have a match or someone that's willing to donate and doesn't have the means to really deal with it. And then just, you know, day-to-day keeping a job. I was lucky I was a kid, I didn't have to have a job really. I missed some school. I get to fool people into thinking I'm just a normal guy, right? That's kind of like the benefit. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts to offer people who weren't as lucky, who aren't as lucky, maybe people who are still on dialysis with a beeper waiting for the the call? I I think what I would say to them, the fact that they're out there and I can think of some of them individually, like, give me that courage to keep going and know how lucky I am. Luck is the key word as it applies to this particular gift. Another version of a lucky gift giver and recipient are a donor and a patient who know each other but maybe aren't direct family members. That's where we start to think about the concept of altruism or generosity and how it applies to this. And that's where we meet Crystal, who at age 30 found herself giving her niece one of her kidneys. We found out my nieces, both their twins, uh, had stage four kidney disease and there is no stage five. So they were kind of at that point where they immediately needed kidneys. And my sister, their mom, she gave one to the one that was worse off. So then the following year, they needed a kidney for the second sister. And so all of us went and got tested and I'm actually getting worked up a little bit talking about it. I didn't uh, even think about it. Sorry, it's a big, it's a kind no, of, yeah, I just, it's a huge deal. I haven't talked about it in uh, full length. So I'll probably get all like blotchy. <laughs> I'm serious, I will. I won't take your picture. <laughs> Don't take my picture. So you go through a lot of testing, and you go for an entire day. You pee in a jug for a week. It's pretty gross. <laughs> this is if, you, then, want, if you want to be the donor. If you want to be the donor. So if you want to be the donor, if you're the, the chosen one. So then I got a phone call. I was actually in a evaluation for my performance with my manager, my store manager. And I got the phone call, and I was like, it says hospital. So I had to answer it because, I mean, you have to. 
Wow. And it was the children's hospital letting me know that they were actually wanted to go forward with me. But I was almost in tears and my store manager is like, what's going on? I was like, oh, I'm going to be a donor, I think. So um, I had seen her two days before and she's like, okay, well, I guess you're going to be inside of me. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say. You can take that out. <laughs> but she did say that. She was like, oh, I guess you're going to be like inside of me. I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I would. <laughs> so Crystal did it. She went under the knife and she gave the gift to her 10-year-old niece. Waking up, it was it was painful. I'm not gonna lie, it hurt a lot. I'm not gonna um, sugarcoat that, but it was definitely worth it. I would do it all over again. If someone needed a liver, I would totally do it, um, or I guess a piece of a liver. Um, but we were sitting in the chairs and we were just watching some TV show, and she looks over at me and she's like, "So, do I owe you money?" I was like, <laughs> "What are you talking about?" She's like. Well, you, you gave me a kidney, so I just didn't know if I owe you money. And I was like, what? No, I, you don't owe me money. I was like, but you can go give me a Coke. And she's like, all right, I'll be your minion. You'll be my master. And I was like, cool. And so I'm still her master. How did this change the relationship with your niece? Um, I mean, other than now, like, I can hold something over her forever. Uh, it really didn't change other than just, uh, just knowing that, like, a piece of my body is inside of somebody else. For me, it's rewarding in the way that, like, you know, I saved someone's life. Um, I always make a joke, because that's what I do, that when people are like, oh, that's such, such a selfless act. And I'm like, actually, it's not. I like her. I wanted to hang out. And the only way I could get her to, like, live was to give her a piece of my body. Mm-hmm. So it's actually selfish, because I didn't want her to leave. Like, I wanted her to be here. Is there such a thing as a selfless act? I do make that joke that there's not, and I kind of believe that. We all do it for a reason, and, and I think that reason is usually somehow related to you. Whether it makes you feel good about yourself, or you want someone to be around to hang out with, like, there's always a selfish reason, I think. Do you believe in altruism at all? Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm also a cynic, so... <laughs> don't think that we're going to use this word altruism lightly. If Crystal says she's a cynic, I'm not sure if I agree. But what I do know is that she's thought through the concept of doing something nice for somebody. This begins our conversation about whether the concept of altruism makes any sense. It feels nice to have other people have things or, you know, also feel nice. You mean like when you watch people, it's like you're watching them in a film or watching somebody who makes a big catch in a sporting event or something. Mm-hmm. You want them to succeed. You're rooting for other people. Yeah. And if you can have a hand in getting them there, that's something for you to feel proud about. And, yeah. and that's worth a lot. That's worth a lot. Yeah. When I was in the hospital, down the hall, there was a person who just was like, I'm going to donate a kidney. And at the time, at least, they didn't even know who they were donating to. She didn't even know the person. And I was like, what? Is she better than me? <laughs> Not everyone is as lucky as Kyle or Crystal's niece. Of all these people waiting right now for the gift of a kidney, one way, the most common way to give the gift is after you die as a cadaverous donor. And in most states, all it takes during your lifetime is to check a box on your driver's license application. Uh, Do you consider your transplant a gift? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think I'd be alive today without it. 
Thank That's you. a big gift. Okay. How do you feel about the anonymous person who donated donated to you? Oh, I'm really thankful for. Her. I'm I'm happy that they checked the box on the driver's license that said I want to be a donor. Um, because without that, they would have probably just been buried, and you know, two other people wouldn't have received kidneys. You know, me and another person. And there's eyes, and there's a heart, and you know, soft tissue. There's all sorts of things a body you can donate. You know, I'm still a donor. Even though I don't know what they'll take, but hopefully something. <laughs> All right. Maybe you got nice eyes. Exactly. And then reuse it again and reuse it again. That'd be so weird if they did that. Maybe. I don't think they can. I don't think they can. This is our friend Eric. For years, he waited for the call. I got called a couple of times. And so they call you and they're like, you need to be here at the hospital in, you know, an hour or two. And so when the fall call finally did happen, I was there in an hour and it was like, let's go. Wow. It was it's that fast. It was that fast. But you said it happened a couple of times, so was it? A couple of times, like, um, whether I wasn't ready, I might have had an infection, or the kidney wasn't quite a match, or I was, like, number two or three in line. So if there's two kidneys to give, they'll always call three or four people in in case the recipient isn't ready for it or they're sick or something like that happens. So they don't, because they only have a short window to actually get it done. How long is that window? 10, 12 hours, maybe. So 10, 12 hours after they die? Something like that, because it has to be removed from the donor's body on, a, on that. So that's, you know, time's ticking, and they need to get it done. What do you know about your donor? Not a thing. Nothing? Nothing at all. Not if they were a man or a woman? Don't know that at all. How old they were? Hopefully around my age, because that's what they try and do is match people roughly the same age. Do you wish you knew more about your donor? No, I really don't. Because I would, I think it'd be complicating. You know, sometimes not knowing is a gift. Mm-hmm. There are altruistic people out there, I think, and there's there's good people trying to do good things every day, no matter what happens in our country politically or anything else. Um, it also made me realize how short life is and how precious it is. You know, and to do with it what you you know to make the most out of it as you can. It's a gift to really realize that. I can think of a lot of people that just kind of wander around, letting life just make their decisions for them. And I think the moment you stop doing that and actually making your own decisions, you're actually going to live a better life. Why do people give? I think humans just give. I think that's part of how we got this far. I think that's how we survived is you have to give. Most people in their lives are willing to give, if, you know, and share. It's part of sharing is giving. Is it possible to be selfless? I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure I know a 100% selfless person because you also have to take care of yourself first. You know, sometimes you have to help yourself before you can help other people because you are going to build a network of giving and receiving and that's going to strengthen friendships and bonds through any society, we hope. I have a question for you guys. Do you remember coming and seeing me in the hospital? Yes. Before school? He was all drugged up. He was kind of funny. Teensy, teensy bit. Yeah. You guys brought me books and good cheer. It was awesome. It was fun to see you guys first thing in the morning. Because I had just come out of surgery. And... First thing in the morning? Yeah, it was. It was really early. It was probably 7 in the morning. Oh. And I had just woken up. We got up super early that morning. <clears throat> you're going to be a donor, but please don't donate a kidney when you're still alive. Why? 
because I don't want you to have to go to surgery, and then that means I can't wrestle you, and that means I can't have fun with you for, like, months. But it could save somebody's life. Please don't. You worried? Yes. Because in the guns episode, you shot a gun. That's true. I don't think for the sake of our show, I'm going to donate a kidney. Good. Thank you. But someday, maybe I will. Who knows? I'm not in a position to do it right now because every day I'm busy with you guys and I've got... I don't know. Maybe I'm just making excuses, but it, it doesn't seem like the right time for me to do it. But maybe when you're older and I'm older, like when I'm 60, you know, you can donate a kidney when you're 72. You can donate a kidney when you're 30. Yeah. Just please don't. But maybe we'll, maybe we'll both donate kidneys someday. I'm not saying we should do that or that anybody should do that. I'm just saying it's a possibility that someday we would be so inspired and in such a position in life that we might have the opportunity to save a life that way. So, you know, our friend Kyle, we talked to him. He, his dad gave him, his, his dad gave him a kidney. Yeah. Um, and for them, it was a really complicated experience. And part of the reason it was complicated was that Kyle was staring mortality in the face. And for him, that was quite a lot of responsibility that it wasn't ready for. It was sort of a, he called it an abyss that he had to stare into to realize that he was mortal and that he might die. But Eric called it a gift to realize his mortality and to ponder it. Why, what do you think the difference between those two guys is? The uh, person who donated to Eric was dead and the person who donated to Kyle was still alive. That's oh, interesting. Most of the time when you're young, you don't like expect to die because 15 would be really young to die. Um, yeah, he was supposed to be thinking about just being a teenager and having a band and having a girlfriend, having fun, right? Mm-hmm. What does it typical 40-year-old think about. You mean as opposed to just having fun and having a girlfriend and being in a band? Mm-hmm. Not that different. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for some reason, it is it is different to think about mortality when you're 40 than it is to think about it when you're 15. So what was in many ways a terrible gift for Kyle was a double gift for Eric. I think Eric thought that um, mortality was a gift because without mortality, if we were all immortal, uh, Eric probably wouldn't have gotten his kidney because the person died. I didn't even think of it that way. But I think that what Eric was saying is that once you're a certain age, mortality allows you, it requires you to look at every day as being a special thing. You know, my dad, your grandpa, once told me that we have about 25,000 days total to deal with in our whole life. 25,000 days is not that many days. If you had only $25,000 to live on for the rest of your life, you would spend every dollar as if it was marked currency, as if it was a pound of gold. You'd be so careful about how you spent your money. But it seems like sometimes we just let the days pass by without either allowing ourselves to receive gifts or without giving gifts to other people. I don't mean to sound corny. I don't care. I love that I get to sound corny simply because I'm your dad and that it's okay. Um, But every day to Eric became a gift once he really grappled with his mortality. But for a 15-year-old, it might not have seemed that way. How is that corny? Oh, I don't know. We will be back in just a second with more Rome School.
this uh, telethon thing on TV, and my agent got me a job as co-host. Oh, that's hey, great! Yeah, a little uh, good deed for PBS, plus some TV exposure. This isn't a good deed. You just want to get on TV. This is totally selfish. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about you having those babies for your brother? Talk about selfish. What, what are you talking about? Uh, well, yeah, it was a really nice thing and all, but it made you feel really good, right? Yeah, so? Well, it made you feel good, so that makes it selfish. Look, there's no unselfish good deeds, sorry. Yes, there are. There are totally good deeds that are selfless. Well, may I ask for one example? Yeah, it's, you know, there's... No, you may not. That's because all people are selfish. Selfless good deeds don't exist. My name is Crudy Vicaria, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Psychology at Georgetown University. We were really curious um, and trying to figure out ways to study costly altruism. And one real-world example of costly altruism that my lab came up with was this altruistic kidney donation. Every year, a few percent of the kidneys that are donated are donated by total strangers to people whom they will never meet, with whom they have zero connection. They don't seem to think that what they've done is really that extraordinary, which is super interesting. So many of them are of the mindset that if more people knew about this, they simply would do it. Although when we interview the controls in our city or people who haven't donated a kidney to a stranger, the average person, this is something that one would not even ever think of doing. There is a little bit of a benefit for them to feel better about themselves and to know that there's somebody out there whose life they may have saved, but the benefit doesn't really outweigh the cost to themselves. And many of them actually say that they don't tell a lot of people that they know that they've done this. They find themselves to be sometimes embarrassed about it because it has sometimes been described as crazy or even pathological to do something like this. And so surprisingly, many of them kind of keep quiet. They don't tell their employer or many of their outside family or friends what they've done. Um, they kind of lay low and keep it to themselves. What was your methodology here? What exactly did you do to study these people and who were they? We studied a group of altruistic kidney donors as well as healthy controls. So in this sample, we had about 21 altruistic kidney donors. We had them complete an economic game, which basically asks our participants a series of questions about choices that they would make for themselves and other people in their social network. So people in their network um, who are closest to them, so person number one, all the way out to person number 100, which could be a stranger or somebody that they've seen before, but they don't know their name. And we asked them to consider a series of questions about uh, sharing or keeping certain amounts of money. This task has been done before with healthy average populations, and it's shown that social discounting is hyperbolic. Social discounting is hyperbolic. How much I care and how much I'll invest in somebody drops off steeply from my closest friends to people I don't know at all. It's not just a linear drop-off. But here we've got a group of people who gave a kidney to a stranger while they were alive. 
an act whose apparent generosity has earned the title altruistic kidney donation. Do these people discount a little differently? Maybe the curve of how they discount maybe isn't as steep as the average person's discount curve? We actually found something interesting here. They actually don't value people who are further away from them the same way that the average person might. They actually value them more and they tend to be more generous towards them and share more money towards them, um, which is super interesting because it kind of mirrors sort of the selfless act that they've done. They've donated a kidney to a stranger um, and they also similarly value their welfare differently as well. One of the main points that we've been thinking a lot about after this paper has come out is how can we get people to think about their social worlds differently and sort of widen their circle of compassion? How do we extend people's compassion all the way out to their far reaches of their social circle, much like these altruists have. You've done a scientific study, but what you found at the end of this study, which was conducted in a scientific manner, mm-hmm. is causing you to engage in something that's its a more of a, it's a mission-based objective, it seems. That's a really interesting question. Um, my thinking has sort of evolved in terms of, in the beginning, I... I first thought that it was really interesting that we were doing a study with this amazing population. And now my mindset has switched a little bit. We're actually using this specific population and this specific sample to study something a little bit more basic. How can we take these findings and use them to further our understanding of empathy and cooperation in general? And I think that has implications far reaching beyond science, especially in this climate. What do you think is the underlying reason that these people are different? Prior research in the lab has found that altruistic kidney donors actually um, have greater response to looking at facial expressions um, of other individuals with a fear expression relative to controls. And that happens in this part of the brain called the amygdala, which is usually involved in emotional responses and plays a role in threat detection and fear detection. Their amygdala is perhaps more responsive to others' distress or fearful faces. There's sort of this underlying mechanism happening in the brain where uh, they just have a greater response to others in distress. Other work in the lab has also studied the amygdala in the context of psychopathic traits or callous, unemotional traits or traits that kind of cause people to inflict harm on others. Um, That's the focus of the lab's work. It's what mechanisms underlie helping as well as harming others. The Given Tree by Shel Silverstein. Once there was a tree and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would and come swing from her branches. And he would gather her and leaves. And when he was tired, and he make would them into and shape. play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk. And the boy loved the tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went by. And the boy grew the boy older. climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. Oh, so this is that book they are talking about. This is a lot sadder, though, than the tree in the forest. 
But I don't get if he loved the tree, then why did he do all that to her? Sometimes people will accept gifts even if it's not good for the giver. That's one of the complicated things about giving. I would not accept that. I wouldn't ask her for so much. But then the tree wouldn't be happy. So there's this, there's a philosopher and author named Ayn Rand, who is a very controversial figure. She wrote Atlas Shrugged, and she wrote all these. Atlas Shrugged? She wrote some big books. Isn't he the titan who held up the sky? I don't know. He is. She was very outspoken against the idea of being selfless, against altruism. I remember when I was a kid, we had a little black and white television. One of the few things that my parents watched was the Donahue show, Phil Donahue. Uh, here's a woman who's read by millions around the world. She may be our most debated uh, philosopher. She identifies that to which she adheres as objectivism, a warm human being who has a lot to say and comes straight at everything she says. I am pleased to present Ayn Rand, Miss Rand. Okay, if you're a Greek mythology fan or an Ayn Rand fan, I happen to know almost nothing about either. Your mind might have just been blown by Dana's correct tie-in there with Atlas, the Greek titan. Because, as it turns out, I will admit to a little Google research here, Ayn Rand did name the book after the Greek titan who had to carry the world or the heavens on his shoulders. And it's based on a conversation that takes place in the book in which the much-belabored, capable people of the world who are carrying the world on their backs go on strike and, in essence, shrug. Thanks for making me look just a little bit dumb, Dana. Okay, how do we start? Uh, you don't like altruists. I disapprove of them. I regard them as evil. Okay, but what's, so what's bad about the person who wants to help other people? People can want to help other people properly and with very good reasons. But that isn't altruism. Altruism doesn't mean merely helping people. It means sacrificing yourself to others. Placing the interests of others above your own is the self-sacrificing person who is an altruist. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with committing suicide? What's wrong with giving up life? And why is the happiness of another person important and good, but not your own? Why are you always the outsider and the sacrificial animal? If you sacrifice a friend for an enemy, that's altruism. Where Ayn Rand left many of us was when you took some of her philosophies to their extreme logical conclusions. The newest proposals of having special millions spent on subnormal children and on the handicapped including the so-called kneeling buses. It's the attempt to bring everybody to the level of the handicapped. This includes the mentally retarded, which is the subnormal, the children who are unable to learn, so that at the end of spending thousands or millions of taxpayers' money, you're left with a half-idiot who may learn to read and write, may. This whole concept of altruism is something that, for the sake of this examination, we just want to turn on its head. Modern philosopher and bioethicist Greg Morlock was willing to talk to us about this and offered some insights that steered us back on track into the land of the giving. Organ donation is a complicated issue because when it comes to living donation, you are taking a perfectly healthy person, so generally these are people with no health issues at all, because you have to be healthy to, be to become a kidney donor. So you're taking a healthy person and you are exposing them to 
fairly major surgery in order to remove their kidney, um, which will then be transplanted into someone who desperately needs a kidney. And for the medical profession, that's quite a difficult thing to do because one of the, the principles of medical ethics is that you're not supposed to harm patients. That normally means that you shouldn't be operating on them unless there is a very good medical reason for doing so. So kidney donation is really a challenge to that because there is no medical reason to, to operate on these, these donors. It's, they, they don't have any problems with their kidneys. But it's still advantageous to be able to have them as donors and to be able to use their kidneys to help other people. So you need to have a good reason to justify operating on them. And one of the the justifications for that, which is generally used, is that being an altruistic person is a good thing for you. If you consider benefit in a much broader sense, so being something that maybe adds value to a person's life, Actually, allowing someone to be altruistic and allowing someone to to become a kidney donor does actually offer them some benefit. And that's how you can use that to justify um, operating on them. So this sort of turns the idea of altruism on its head. It's almost suggesting that true altruism, as as we've thought about it until now, doesn't exist because altruism always reflects back on itself. It always turns back in a circular way to make the giving person better and healthier. Yeah, I think that there there probably is quite a strong argument to suggest that you can essentially reduce most altruistic acts to something that we might consider to be egoistic, so something that benefits the person doing it. Internally? Yeah. They may be motivated to help other people, but in doing so, they are also satisfying their own desire to help somebody else. So in a sense, it, it does always come back to satisfying one's own desires. So yeah, I think that altruism in that sense is turned on its head somewhat. The more that we look into this, the more it seems moot. If you're looking at society as a whole, does it really matter whether an act that I commit of of generosity benefits my ego or benefits my village or the next village over? From my perspective, we don't know what motivates most people to become organ donors. We presume that they they may want to, to help other people and that may be the source of their motivation. But they also might want to be remembered in a certain way. They might be trying to atone for, for past mistakes in their lives. Um, there are all sorts of potentially complicated motivations. So as far as I'm concerned, it's not so much the, the motivation behind action that's important as actually the, the outcomes of the action. From a moral theory perspective, we might look at that in terms of consequentialism. And for me, um, for these sorts of things, consequences are generally the most important things that we should be considering. It's such a unique situation, the organ donor situation, in terms of how we look at generosity and altruism. It's it's a real problem trying to, to pinpoint exactly what altruism means. Um, altruism is quite a muddy concept. Uh, so it's not always the case acting altruistically is the morally right thing to do. Um, but there are some times when perhaps it, it can be the right thing to do. And certainly in the case of deceased organ donation, I do firmly believe that donating organs after death is, is the right thing to do. So in those situations, I do think that altruism is, is morally required. What we've stumbled across is that there is some resistance to specifically non-directed 
donors who are donating to a stranger or participating in a chain because there's a fear that this will contribute uh, or, or lead towards a slippery slope of an organ industry, people selling their organs at bazaars and, yeah. and the types of psychological evaluations that a non-directed donor um, has to go through in order to prove that they're not crazy for doing this incredibly generous thing. Um, going under the knife to give up a kidney, et cetera. Yeah. What are the types of things that we should be looking at as a society when we look, when we talk to somebody who says, hey, you know, I've got two kidneys and there are 120,000 people right now um, waiting for kidneys. I could go save a life. How should we look at these people? So that, that, like you say, there is a lot of suspicion about these people. There are concerns that they're either going to be getting paid or rewarded in some other way or that they may have pre-existing mental health issues that are leading them to be so generous. Um, there's a lot of suspicion that, yeah, how could anyone want to undergo surgery, fairly major surgery still, uh, just to help other people? I mean, what's in it for them? Um, but the evidence suggests, actually, that all of this suspicion is completely misplaced. Um, I've met some of these altruistic donors, and they are just ordinary people who take the view that they have two kidneys they only need one, although the operation to remove their kidney might give them some suffering in the short term. The longer term implications and the longer term risks are relatively low. It is really important to make sure that these people are acting freely, um, that they're not under any coercion. Uh, now, if they're donating to a stranger, then it's unlikely that there will be coercion. But when it comes to living donation more generally, a lot of that takes place within families and there probably are some situations where there will be subtle forms of coercion going on. So it's important to be aware of those and try to make sure that that, that sort of thing isn't happening. EBS Telethon. Hi. Hey, Phoebes. I would like to make a pledge. I would like to donate $200. $200? I'm doing a good thing, but I'm not happy about it. <laughs> so there, a selfless good deed. Right, and you don't feel a little good about donating the money. Damn it! <laughs> the worst gift I ever received was my 22nd or 23rd birthday. I was dating someone that I was going to break up with anyway, but it was my birthday, and I sort of cinched it when he gave me a framed picture of himself it. It wasn't me and him or anything like that. It was just him. I thought it was a joke and then I looked at him and realized it wasn't a joke. And that was that. The greatest gift I've ever received um, were actually a series of uh, letters that my father wrote to me um, about five years ago. <clears throat> and I keep them uh, by my bedside and um, I read through them occasionally uh, when I when I need support or when I need um, just kind of an affirmation of where I'm at in life. They were from my father uh, to me at a time when I was uh, going through the lowest period of my life. I had um, gone into uh, rehabilitation for alcohol dependence and um, growing up in my family, uh, my father was a European immigrant and... Um, an incredibly accomplished uh, guy. You know, I think like a lot of old Europeans, was a was a fairly stoic, um, stoic guy who led by example and 
was a pretty hard act to follow. And I looked up to him more than more than anybody. But uh, you know, when when going through uh, a period of time when you feel like you really are a disappointment, or you know, you've ended up at a place that's not on par with the achievement that your folks may have <clears throat> wanted for you. Um, these letters uh, my dad started sending to me um, uh, on a daily basis, and they were uh, they were very confessional and very open. He allowed me into a very personal um, part of his life, and a lot of his failures and. And a lot of his sadnesses and, you know, it was very humanizing. And they were encouraging uh, for me and, and my relationship with my father. They were, they were words that I not only needed to hear, but they were words that I had never really heard before coming from a guy that I looked up to, uh, but who was not really a very um, emotionally open uh, person. So they're important letters to me um, in, in what they did for me at a difficult time in my life. And, you know, that's, those are probably the most open conversations I've ever had with my father, albeit they, they weren't a back and forth. They were through the letters, you know, directly from my father to, to me. Um, but it made me realize that, uh, you know, we all have difficulties in our own lives, and my father was no different. That right there is, is by far the, the most important gift I've ever received, and I will hold on to them, and someday... Uh, hopefully pass them on to my son. Thank you to Anders Bergstrom for that last story, Tali Ovadia before that, and to all the people who talked to us on the show about the difficulties, the nuances of giving. We want to leave you with one thought, and that's go out and give the way that you give as best as you can. You just spent an hour with us talking about giving. One way to figure out how to give especially if you're in the Pacific Northwest, is to go to Willamette Week's Give Guide. There are 150 nonprofits, all extremely worthy, with basic mission statements and other information about the organizations at giveguide.org. For the last couple months, we've been on a little hiatus between seasons in which we made one-minute videos for each of these that you can check out at that website as well. And if you have anything left in your heart and in your pocketbook, please remember that Rome School is a nonprofit 501c3, and we will happily accept your donations in order to help us bring stories to light that you otherwise might not hear give voices to the nuance and common ground that exists on divisive issues and give alternative viewpoints and diverse philosophies attention and discussion that they might not otherwise receive. If you send us a donation, we will send you the Rome School Thank You Package, which includes a Rome School Junior Park Ranger badge, which is just as cool for adults as it is for kids, and a customized Ranger Oath written by Dana or Vern just for you for the first time you put it on. Information about all this is at romeschooled.com. That's R-O-A-M. Thank you for listening. Romeschooled is written and produced by me and the girls with a lot of ideas as well as emotional and technical support from Lydia Ritchie, mother of Oscar and former owner of Oscar the Cat. Production and development assistance from Slater Smith. The music is all by a band called Wonderly. The soundtrack is available on iTunes. Please do us a huge favor and give us a good rating and tell your friends about this podcast. This season's roaming may take us to your town, country, or hobbit hole in the woods, and we look forward to talking with you as we go find out.